A deeper look, exploring what works and what doesn't in development and the changes we can make together to turn ideas into action. Welcome to a Deeper Look podcast. I'm Patrick Fine, CEO of FHI 360, and this is where we take a deeper look into the issues affecting human development. I'd like to remind everybody that you can subscribe to A Deeper Look, and that way you can have our monthly podcast just come right to you, and you can hear the views and perspectives of some of the most interesting and engaged practitioners and thinkers working on international and human development issues. This year, as our returning listeners know, we're taking a deeper look into humanitarian crisis and emergency response. And in this episode, we're going to explore the epidemic and pandemic crises that we've seen emerging in recent years and look at the prospect for pandemics to shape humanitarian crisis in the future. I'm delighted to have with me today Dr. Jonathan Quick, a family physician, a health management specialist, one of the international leaders on epidemic prevention and control. Jono, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Patrick. Good to be here. Listeners, Dr. Quick is the author of a new book, The End of Epidemics, The Looming Threat to Humanity and How to Stop It, which was published earlier this year. The book is available in the U.S. and worldwide. Dr. Quick is also a senior fellow at Management Sciences for Health, where for many years he was the chief executive officer. MSH is a global nonprofit organization working in the world's poorest places to build strong, locally-led, locally-run health systems. So it's a uh, pure organization to FHI 360 and certainly has made a huge contribution to global public health under Dr. Quick's leadership. Dr. Quick has personally carried out assignments in over 70 countries in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East, so he's worked around the globe. He currently serves as chair of the Global Health Council, and he's on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School and the Boston University School of Public Health. Previously, Dr. Quick was a director of essential medicines at the World Health Organization and is a fellow of the Royal Society of Medicine. So we're talking with one of the eminent practitioners and thinkers in global public health today. Now, what I'd like to do is get your perspective on the issue of pandemics. They've had a lot of attention over the last five years, especially since the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, and how you see pandemic disease or the threat of pandemic disease affecting the international community's approach towards humanitarian response. Okay, well thank you Patrick and thank you for that um, introduction kindly. I think it's important to get a couple of concepts clear. So an epidemic is an increase, a significant increase in usually we've been using an infectious disease outbreak And a pandemic is when it crosses borders and goes worldwide. So what we saw in 1918 was a devastating pandemic that infected a third of the world's population and killed 50 to 100 million people. And that was a flu. That was a flu pandemic. We'll come come back to the flu. 
Then we need to distinguish what you might call regional epidemics of significance. And so that's really what the Ebola outbreak was in 2014. It was a regional epidemic. Ebola, because it, it has a real high horror value and uh, high mortality, but it's relatively hard to catch. It doesn't lend itself to being a pandemic. Ebola will do a lot of damage in the, the countries it's in, in the regions it's in, but it won't go global. Mm-hmm. Paradoxically, flu, which most of us think of as a bad cold, that actually has and still has the potential to go global in a matter of months. And if we had something like 1918, which we could still have something like that today, we're just as vulnerable, but for different reasons, a pandemic like that would kill 30 million people in six months. Around the entire Around world. Around the entire world, yeah. Now, I've read that the 1918 pandemic flu actually had a very low mortality rate, something like 0.2% of the people who contracted the flu died of it. Well, that's, that's actually about what seasonal flu is. It was higher than that. Do you recall it what was, it was? About five, depends on which total death rate you take, but closer to 5%. So 5%. But yeah. compare that to a disease like Ebola, yeah. where the mortality rate can be as high as 50 to 60%. Yeah, no. And, and you have, you have uh, flu viruses today that have a, a mortality rate of 60%. Oh, you do? Yeah, some of the bird flus. But what happens is... To get a pandemic of the magnitude we had, the virus needs to be both highly contagious and highly deadly. And, and that's really what we had in, in 1918. In recent years, the pandemics that we've seen concerns about have been SARS, MERS, bird flu, and Ebola, and you've clarified that Ebola is more of a regional epidemic as opposed to a global pandemic because of the mode of transmission, Exactly, yeah. The the airborne ones, the the ones that you've described as pandemic, all of those are airborne. Those are the viruses that are most likely to go global. Because they can travel on airplanes. (laughs) Yeah, they can travel on airplanes, they they can transmit on airplanes, they also can transmit on surfaces. So are there other lurking infectious diseases out there that we should be on the watch for? So on the side of pandemics, we've talked about flu, which is the the nightmare scenario, particularly given the fact that we also have a not well-performing vaccine and all. But So flu is one. Known viruses that have pandemic potential like SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome. This was the first new pandemic pathogen of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. AIDS was the first new pandemic pathogen in modern times. That was, Mm -hmm. you know, came out in the 20th century. But, but, But SARS, this is a virus which was totally unknown came from a a bat in rural China to a delicacy animal called the civet, uh, to a doctor who treated somebody who'd been infected, Chinese doctor who ended up on the ninth floor of the Metropole Hotel in Hong Kong, spread it to a dozen other people on that floor who, within weeks, that virus was in 27 countries. But because of really decisive action and rapid action on the part of the World Health Organization at that time, and, and others uh, worldwide that came into this, 
That virus, after getting to 27 countries in a matter of weeks, was put back in the box in six months and how, hasn't returned. How many people were infected? Total of 8,000 people and about 800 died. It was, quote, small as an epidemic. The economic impact was, was in the order of $30 billion. Mm -hmm. There's the effect of the epidemic, the disease process, and then there's the aversion effect, all of the reactions, the fear. And so those reactions basically uh, literally closed airports in China, uh, and for some for, for a week, and reduced travel by half. There were countless people who lost jobs and businesses that were closed because of that. But again, because of rapid action and good public health work, that was put back in the box. It was probably one flight away from getting into countries who couldn't have controlled it, in Africa mm -hmm. or elsewhere, and if that had happened, it could still be with us today. So is SARS similar to MERS? Yes, they're both in the similar family of viruses. The most common effect is, is respiratory. They basically get in, inflame your lungs, and you may get simply acute respiratory distress where your lungs fill with fluid. Uh, you need an intensive care unit, and those aren't around in, in many places. Or they, they ravage the lungs enough so that you get a secondary infection. Like pneumonia? Yeah, like pneumonia. And the, the story about SARS that we don't hear a lot, we say, well, a 10% death rate, that's bad, but not awful. But probably over a quarter of the SARS victims had respiratory problems, had permanent damage to their lungs, so they're those knock-on effects. Uh-huh. And what about MERS? Was it... It wasn't at the same level. No, so MERS is, is a virus that comes out of the Middle East. It's, it's associated with camels, oh. and they're part of the ecology of, of the virus. What happened there was a, a single person, a guest worker from Korea, traveled back to Korea and was misdiagnosed in a couple of hospitals, and then there was a relatively small number of cases, but it caused a panic, so much so that it affected the stock market, and they actually had to adjust the prime interest rate to try to balance off on the economics of it. You may remember after the Hajj a couple of weeks ago, there were a couple of airlines that were stopped on the tarmac at JFK that uh, were returning from the Hajj. And so it, returning from Saudi Arabia. From Saudi Arabia, yeah. And the underlying fear was if there was MERS on that, that would have been bad. In, in the end, it, it was not. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about putting things back in the box because you've made reference to the kind of response that is necessary. And part of what we're exploring in this podcast is humanitarian response. So when there is a catastrophe, when there's a complex emergency, what are the responses necessary from either a nation or the international community to control it. And it seems to me that when we're talking about infectious diseases, that we're talking about very specific types of response. So the first priority is on prevention. Preventing outbreaks in the first place with good public health education, simple things like hand washing and with soap. hygiene. Hand washing with soap, front and back of the hand, 20 seconds, that's two, two verses a happy birthday. That, and that's what you really need. And don't use hot water that burns you so you don't finish. But those sort of basic measures are really important and having vaccination programs in place when needed. So that's a critical part of it. Early detection is vital. So who's ever on the ground needs to be 
alert to identify new outbreaks, things that, that haven't been there. And that's having surveillance systems in place. Well, is that right? It's surveillance. is sort of a specialized process of uh, kind of actively looking. But it's also having frontline health workers trained mm -hmm. in recognizing. So it's not primary health care or outbreak identification. It's both. And I'll give you an example. Uganda is a country that has suffered some of the worst Ebola outbreaks. They, they've handled them, but it, it's known there. So there's an accredited drug sellers program with Gates Foundation support uh, that uh, Management Sciences for Health worked with our Ugandan colleagues to put in place. And before the recent Ebola and anything else, Part of that training for those frontline, trusted, local drug sellers it was teaching them how to identify unusual uh, events. Right. And, and interestingly, there was a spinoff of this program in Liberia of uh, accredited drug sellers. 700 who'd been identified and were trained or in the process, 700 of these accredited drug sellers, all of them in Montserrado County, which was the, the ground zero. The for, epicenter. The epicenter, yeah. And during the outbreak, while the formal facilities were closing because they w had become transmission centers and all, the drug shops stayed open and doubled their business. And so, you know, we visited some of them, after, not during Ebola, but afterwards, and it was really fascinating to hear their stories, and I asked them how they protected themselves. It was really interesting. So they had all of the, the chlorine and stuff at the door to uh, wash it off, but their counters were about a yard Just, just deep. to give people a, an idea, we're talking about small little shops. And these are shops of maybe the size of a kind of a, of a small study. I mean, they're maybe 10 feet by 10 feet. Right. They stock a lot of medicines, and in many countries they will let you use antibiotics. So it's the essential medicines for life-saving uh, problems, diarrhea, that sort of thing. So these shops continued to provide all these primary care services, life-saving prevention and treatment, and had a way within their, these little shops, because they did have counters, these glass counters you see, of protecting themselves from getting Ebola. And, and how did they protect them? So they had disinfectant at yeah. the doorway, yeah. which was chlorine, or Clorox, yeah. right? Yeah. Bleach, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Then what did they do at the counter? Well, they're display counters. Right. So they're, they're about 30 inches deep. And so they took a no-touch approach with their clients. Right. And they would be really vigilant about that. I have a question I want to go back to. You mentioned that HIV AIDS was the first new pandemic infectious disease of uh, modern, modern times. times. Yeah. And that appeared in the 20th century, I think. It yeah. traces back to 1948 or so. Actually, it traces back to 1920. Oh, really? Okay. So it goes back to the close to the start of the uh, 20th century. Yeah. Now, it traveled worldwide. Right. It sexually spread, and it created probably the biggest public health mobilization that the world has seen to date to deal with a pandemic disease. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And certainly from a treatment point of view, it's the biggest public health treatment program in history. But um, yeah, I would say in terms of global mobilization, yes. And now in a number of regions, the pandemic appears to have been brought under control because of both prevention, care, and then 
new treatments, effective treatments, especially effective antiretroviral drugs, so that it is more of a chronic disease. So would that be an example of a disease that was a pandemic and then it has been brought under control in some regions because of effective response, but in other regions it remains at epidemic or regional pandemic levels? It's an interesting progression because you get an outbreak, which is a few cases, you get uh, uh, an epidemic, um, you, you get a pandemic, and if, if it stays, and stays at about the same level, it's what's called endemic. So AIDS is an endemic disease, which people say, oh, well, you know, that doesn't sound so bad. But actually, it's the worst outcome because it's still with us. And the thing with AIDS is the end game for AIDS is going to be tough. It's an example of two things. One is what happens when a new disease gets ahead of you. And so we were really lucky with SARS that we caught up with it. Um, but we really let it smolder out of control. And in this country, we politicized it over the first decade, both from the right and the left. And the result is that we have continued to have higher attack rates and higher death rates in other countries of comparable economic status. From HIV AIDS. From HIV AIDS, uh -huh. yeah. So it illustrates what happens if you let an epidemic really get ahead of you. And if you politicize it. Yes, which is probably the most common way that epidemics get ahead is they get politicized, they don't get the response that's needed, and then you have a big problem. But the other thing with AIDS is because of the way it's transmitted and you have a long period without symptoms but when you're contagious. Right. So it is indeed different in different places. In some countries, it's a concentrated epidemic around drug use, but in most places, it is sexual. In this country, AIDS moved from a sort of initially West Coast gay population to a now a Southern poorer population, which doesn't get the health care, which there have been basically ideological fights over good public health measures like syringe exchange and things like mm -hmm. that. So those are just examples of how the human, it's the human response that differentiates between huge impact and, and not just the virus itself. Right, which brings us back to how we respond to these humanitarian crises when they emerge. So just listening to you, some of the lessons are, one, find ways to avoid politicizing the response. Two is some of the basic public health measures that you spoke about, everything from washing your hands to having frontline health workers, whoever they may be, whether they're the certified drug sellers or what about community health workers? Oh, absolutely critical. Absolutely critical. Because it's early detection that really lets you get the move on. With the SARS example, where you had 8,000 people who were infected and it had spread to 27 countries, did you say? Yeah. Was that early detection or what? Yes, it was. It was early detection and rapid response. So there was some very astute clinicians, one by the name of Dr. Urbani, who worked for WHO, who, who actually went out there at first said, I thought this was flu, but it's, it's something different. He ended up actually dying of, of SARS, but the key thing was he recognized it as, as being something different and mobilized a much more rapid response. In your book, when you talk about the end of epidemics, yeah. 
You're really not talking about the end of epidemics, are you? I'm not You're talking about the threat of epidemics? We're not talking about the end of infectious disease outbreaks. The bugs are always going to be with us, and we'll always have the last word, as Louis Pasteur said over 100 years ago. But the difference between a local disease outbreak and a catastrophic regional epidemic or global outbreak is more often than not human action or inaction. It's really stopping the preventable epidemics. And you're optimistic that we're at a place now where the international community has the tools, the knowledge, the institutions to do that? We know what's needed, and we've made a lot of progress in the last five years, so the tools have moved a lot in the last five years. Mm -hmm. And do you think Ebola was a main driver? Yes, that accelerated it for sure. So the threats are real and growing. The public health and scientific community know what's needed and is doing it. But as always, we're moving too slowly with too few resources. We go back and forth from what Jim Kim calls the cycle of panic and neglect. Mm -hmm. And we're in that again. We're in the neglect side? Sorry, we're back on the neglect side, yeah. We're back on the neglect side. And we're just not taking it seriously enough and keeping on point. I mean, this whole bundle of responses is under the banner of global health security. Infectious diseases have killed far more people than armed conflict. But it's easy to get all the money in the world for military. We haven't had a nuclear bomb dropped in in 70 years, but there's still, everybody's really, really vigilant about that. But they're not concerned about the fact that, in fact, North Korea's got smallpox in their lab and and could weaponize it if they wanted to, and we're just not prepared for these things. But we could be if we moved quicker and stayed on focus with it. So we're not allocating the resources. You're talking about the U.S. in this case, but I don't hear much talk about biological weapons, and perhaps that's just because it's too terrifying a thought for people to contemplate. But do you, when, when thinking about future pandemics, how do you look at the prospect for those to be started deliberately as part of a attack by one state or non-state actor? The risk and potential for that, the likelihood is low, but the risk and the impact is high. High enough that when the uh, Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security several months ago did a, a scenario, they chose a, a bioterror virus as the focus of it. Mm-hmm. And it was a role play, and you had the f- two former heads of CDC on there as a part of that role play. You had uh, several people, two people from Congress playing themselves in the role play. They took it seriously. You've pointed out that there's been attention given to how to prevent and respond to pandemics, and much of that was driven by the Ebola outbreak in West Africa and the panic that that created. That gave rise to the global health security agenda here in the United States, but it also gave rise to reforms at the World Health Organization and to actions by other countries. And you've noted that now, in the last year or or two, as that threat receded, so did the attention of the international community and the attention of the American government. And we've seen the global health security agenda, the funding for that was one of the first items on the chopping block as the current U.S. administration has sought to reduce expenditures. 
what needs to be done for us as a nation and for the international community to be prepared for the next pandemic? So what we need is leadership and engagement at all levels. We want to look at our elected leaders and say they're not doing what they need to be doing, but they're subject to the politics and economics and now. And so they're going to face different pressures and all. And if the public is not concerned, then, you know, they're going to get blown in different right, directions. Right. We need to take interest in what's happening in Congress in this area. And that's a critical part of it. The other part of it is the business community. And the business community has the most to gain from being able to work in countries safe from pandemic threats and the most to lose if it's not safe. But a lot of the business people that I've talked to say, well, that's government's responsibility. If I was a business leader and I was working you know, in any country that's at risk, which is pretty much all countries, I actually wouldn't go to the Ministry of Health. I'd go to the Ministry of Finance and Trade and say, if we're going to do business in this country, we want to know we're not going to get decimated like the mining industry did in West Africa or the tourist industry did in Southeast Asia. So, Minister of Finance, we want you to support the work that the Ministry of Health knows needs to be done to make this country safer from these outbreaks. Right. Which, as you've explained, is pretty straightforward action. It doesn't sound that complicated. No, technically it's not. And, and one of the big achievements in the Global Health Security Agenda, which is global, at least 60 countries involved worldwide, and good shared leadership, one of the key things is we now have a tool that will let them assess, and it's actually an external assessment. So you bring outside folks in also and do an assessment of prevention, early detection, rapid response. So there's no question what needs to be there, and countries are helping other countries to do that assessment. Is there a so, system for doing those assessments? There's a, a system for doing the assessment, but each country has to step forward. It has to volunteer to be assessed. A and it's a joint thing, yes. Right. They do a self-assessment first and then and then joint outside. And the nice thing about this is this isn't a North telling the South what to do. This is collective. They're called JEE, Joint External Assessment. The U.S. has done its JEE. It's pretty much all green with a few yellows. Australia's done theirs. Laos, when they did theirs, was lots of red and yellow. So it's a really important tool. Is that managed by the World Health Organization? It is a World Health Organization tool, mm -hmm. and they will provide technical assistance. But again, WHO has the authority of international law through the international health regulations, so they can declare emergencies. They can set the standards. What they don't have the authority to do is actually force countries to come up to standards. But your sense is that in terms of using this tool, because that does sound like a really important advance in terms of countries assessing their own status, doing it collaboratively with experts from different parts of the world. Is that looking like it will become institutionalized or a regular part of the international agenda for countries to participate? Yes, and there's an accountability body that's been set up under the World Health Organization that is chaired by the former head of the World Health Organization, Gro Harlan Brutlin. She was the one who was director general at the time of SARS and mm -hmm. has proven she knows what success looks like and, and, and she does hold people accountable. So I, I think those are all really promising developments.
I think we have time for one more topic, which is um, often referred to as One Health. Yeah. And that has to do with human health in a broader ecosystem that includes animals. Do you want to say something about that? Yeah, I mean, if we look at it, we've had a, a steady increase in the number of, of outbreaks, about 60% from a species jump, animal to humans. And actually, the big ones have been animal to humans. So if you look at AIDS, the AIDS was originally a monkey virus. Southeast of Cameroon, around 1920, made five different jumps into humans. And only one of those succeeded big. When an animal virus gets into a human, it's a sort of trial and error whether it's going to make it because it's a different environment. We've got viruses like the Zika virus, which hung out in East Africa pretty quietly for 70 years and is transmitted by mosquitoes. And that, through increased air travel, ended up getting into Brazil at a time when they'd lapsed on their mosquito control. And it's sort of a little bit like a forest fire that gets into the roots and smolders for a while, and all of a sudden, pff, the whole forest is on fire. Mm -hmm. The Zika virus got into the whole mosquito population there, and then you have thousands of women in, in uh, Latin America that are facing real preventable grief over the, the birth defects that the Zika causes, the small brains and a cascade of other birth defects, and then a smaller number of paralysis that adults can get. So those are two examples of, of how animal viruses get into Well, humans. and flu comes from birds, And right? flu, yes. The flu virus is constantly trading genes among waterfowl, pigs and chickens, humans, and it's the waterfowl that are the intercontinental transporters. Although most of the bad flu viruses come out of Asia and China, two of the biggest epidemics of flu have come out of the U.S. The 1918 flu, the biggest source of that, was military bases in Kansas. And then that was a, probably the original major source of, of influenza. And then 2009, there was a swine flu that came out of simultaneously uh, California and Mexico. Mm -hmm. So in terms of being prepared to address pandemics, how does the One Health approach or thinking about the animal side of the equation fit in? So there, there are two key parts there. There's the bush and the barn. The bush being things that come out like from reservoirs and monkeys or bats or mosquitoes, mm -hmm. whatever. And we, so we need to be monitoring for that and being really vigilant to pick up new outbreaks when it happens. On the barn side, which is the, the chickens and the pigs. We domesticated Domesticated animals. animals and, and it is primarily chickens and pigs and poultry. Ducks mm -hmm. are in there big time too. We need to be vigilant about the food industry because it's when humans and pigs are interacting, humans and chicken, and sh sharing the same air or the same fluids. It's being vigilant about the food industry. Right, to prevent the transmission yeah. from our food sources, domestic animals, to humans. Right. So, Jono, I want to thank you for joining me today. We've talked over the course of this year mostly about man-made disasters, complex emergencies that arise out of conflict. It's been fascinating to hear your perspective on the way that um, societies manage their animal populations or the way they prepare themselves will have a, a big impact on their ability to respond and whether a 
epidemic or a pandemic, but this is more of a natural-caused humanitarian crisis. Well, they used to say that about famines, that famines were an act of God. We now know that to a very large extent they're the result of human action or inaction. That in fact, it, today in the 21st century, we know that famines, that hunger is a man-made phenomenon. Right. I mean, I think the, the, the famine and the hunger is a good analogy because we can make the world safer. I, I think there's a lot of parallels between what's happening with pandemic threats and global warming. And our generation is, mm-hmm. is the people online can't see the gray hair, but our, <laughs> our generation is leaving a world that's much less sustainable because we turned a blind eye for, for, since the first warning 30 years ago. I don't want to also leave the next generation, my daughters and their kids, a world that is more dangerous from infectious disease outbreaks. And your book, The End of Epidemics, The Looming Threat to Humanity and How to Stop It, is a great place to see how we can address that particular issue and leave a legacy of a safer world to the future. Jono, thanks very much for being with me today. Thank you, Patrick. Good talking with you. As always, listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in and listening to this fascinating conversation I think that last point is particularly interesting. While pandemics may be viewed as a natural phenomenon, the way that uh, mankind or humankind has managed our environment makes them much less natural and falling into that man-made category. You can share this episode with the hashtag DeeperLook. You can subscribe and add comments on this episode and on other episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I've been thinking about the theme for the podcast for next year, for what we're going to take a deeper look at next year. And we're thinking about a theme that looks at the darker side of development that looks at some of the paradoxes and unintentional consequences from our efforts to build a better world. So I want to encourage listeners, if you have ideas for particular topics or episodes that need a deeper look into the darker side of development, please send them in. I really appreciate the comments that I've received from you over the course of this year. They've helped to inform the conversation. Please keep those comments coming. And if you've got a topic you want to suggest for next year on the idea of uh, the darker side of development, please let me know. Thank you very much.